Welcome to Come Along for the Ride, where we love to bring consciousness to the horse world. And we're also making the world a better place for horses. I'm your host, Tracy Malone. I was born on the country of the Wiradjuri people. And this podcast is brought to you from my home in the Sanford Valley in the northwest of Brisbane, Australia. I'd like to acknowledge the Turrbal and Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of this land on which this podcast is made and where my family and horses live and gather. I'd like to recognise their connection to land, water, community and our sacred animals. I am grateful to Elders past, present and emerging for keeping the sacred land here in Sanford safe and protected throughout many tens of thousands of years. I have great pride to live on country where the oldest known human beings tended to this land. I'm also grateful that you have taken the time to choose this podcast at this very moment. Thank you for being a part of the global change we are making to the welfare and training of horses. I know it's been a while and I've been irregular on posting podcasts. So thank you so much for hanging in there with me. It's been a tricky time. I'm back now and I will be posting this new episode today, obviously, because you're listening to it. Then I will do a weekly playback of our most listened to episodes. Then another new episode in a month from now. Then some more favourite episodes weekly. And then the following month after that, I'll get back into new weekly episodes. Hopefully, fingers crossed, that's my intention and what I'm heading towards. It's time to dive back in deep and keep making the world a better place for horses. If you'd like to support this podcast and all the work that I do, then you can. Just head on over to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash come along for the ride podcast and sign up from as little as a cup of coffee a month you can help me keep this podcast going there are many tiers that you can choose from and if everyone who listens gave only five dollars a month it would make a massive positive difference to me and the making of this podcast there is a tier there for small business subscriptions and um, you can do that one just like peter pap There's lots of different tiers that you can choose from. There's even a tier that is for small business subscription, just like the one Peter Papp took up from Peter and the Herd. This is the one where your business gets a mention each week on the podcast. Peter works with equine behavior and trauma recovery, equine communication, horse and human relationship building. Peter has had communication with my mare Gypsy, who's the mare you see with me in the podcast picture. And he was spot on about everything. So I can highly recommend his work personally. The links to Peter's social media pages are in the show notes. This week's episode is with Dominique Day from Equiosity. Dominique has a business called Equiosity, which she runs with Alexandra Kurland, who was one of the original people in the world to bring positive reinforcement training to the horse world. Together they do a podcast as well as online courses and webinars. Dominique was one of the creators of Cavalia, you know that horse show that we all adore, and it's a wonderful story to hear about how all of that began with her and for her. But it's certainly not the most interesting part of her story, which is what I found so fascinating. 
that Cavalia is the least interesting thing about her because she's done so many things since then. She's had a wonderful progression from watching more traditional methods of horse training into positive reinforcement. And she's been keeping strong with her gut feeling and knowing there must be a better way. And then she found it. And um, if you're anything like me, you may very well be able to relate to that part of her story very closely. So you're going to love this story. And uh, I know you will because I did. And uh, we're on the same page here. So sit back and enjoy this podcast. And I look forward to coming into your ears every week from here on in. Here is Dominique. Dominique, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. My pleasure. It is so wonderful to have you here. I'm so excited to hear this amazing story of yours. Can you first tell me just a little bit about what it is that you do? Uh, right now, I have a podcast myself as well It's um, and a website. It's called Equiosity, which is a, a difficult word to say, but it's a combination of equus and curiosity. So it's a weekly podcast I do with uh, Alexandra Curlin, who is a pioneer um, in the horse world for clicker training. Uh, we've been doing it now for um, over a year, every week. Haven't missed a week or maybe just one. And uh, we also, on our Equiosity website, we, um, we have a store and we sell some webinars that we have done with uh, collaborators such as uh, Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz and Ken Ramirez, Ken Ramirez and um, Dr. Susan Friedman. So, um, and we're preparing a course that will probably be launched um, in the fall on uh, behavior analysis. So, and I'm enjoying my three horses and my dog my Shetland dog and exploring clicker training with them beautiful so where did it all for, begin for you with horses very late in my life um, I knew nothing about horses until probably my 30s when I co-founded the horse show Cavalia Neither my partner nor I knew anything about horses. Oh, can you take one step back? How did you go from knowing nothing about horses to, to co-founding Cavalia? What was your... Um... Well, we, we were partners in life and we've been together for about, I think, 10 or 13 years when this came up. My career was in communications and marketing. I had done that... Um, in agencies and in the corporate world and also in the classical music world. He, um, he was from the show business industry. He had done that since forever. Um, and so when we first met, we actually met um, when it was the uh, anniversary of the city of Montreal. I was doing the PR and he was the um, programming director. And that's, that's when we met. But then, you know, we, we, uh, for, for over 10 years, we did our own things, each on our side. But um, at the beginning of 2000, he started talking about doing this show um, with horses, where horses would be presented differently. Because, you know, horses and shows have been around, especially in Europe, I would say, 
for a long, long time. You know, in circuses, there has always been uh, horse acts, but we, he wanted to do something else, something different. He didn't want to work in a round, you know, a stage where the horses are turning round and round and round and round. He wanted to break that and open it up. Um, have a lot of liberty acts, which are acts where the horses are free to play with the artists. So I've always been an animal lover. And when he started talking about that, um, he piqued my interest. And was he a horse person? I'm sorry? Is he a horse person? Was he always? No, he's not. I think the only time he actually was on a horse was for a photo shoot for, for a newspaper, and that was it. <laughs> what an extraordinary man to be able to have that foresight when he's not even a horse person. That's a- well, you know, what happened was that he had a show um, that summer. It was an outside show with, like, volunteer artists, two hundreds of them, was huge set outside with a lake and forest and big, big stage. So there were all these uh, these artists on stage, but at some point in that show, there was one horse that crossed the stage. That The show was about um, French-Canadian legends. And so there was this one horse that crossed the stage, and although there was all this stuff going on, uh, on stage, everybody looked at the horse, and the director came to Normand. He said, "Well, we have to take that horse out of it, the show because he's stealing the the focus." Ah. And so that started, you know, um, what's the word in English? That started an idea mm-hmm. in his mind that you know, horses are captivating. And they can fill a stage. Indeed. And so, and I think the fact that neither he nor I knew anything about horses was actually a plus because this is why we presented things that had never been presented before. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, in the beginning, when we first hired, you know, all the equestrian people, there were some things that we wanted to do where they would say, well, you can't do that. You know, you can't have a girl come from the ceiling of the big top down to the horse. The horse will get scared. Yeah. But we did. We, we pushed. Um, we also, the, the Liberty Act, um, which were very important in, in the show, uh, we had this huge, huge stage. And so um, usually when you have, you know, traditional... Uh, shows or circuses, the trainer is is always in the middle of the circle, and the whip, the length of the whip, was actually um, invented so that the horse would always be at the tip of the whip of the trainer mm. in circuses. And so the horse is always under, um, you know, di- directly. Um, at the length of the whip, but we, without the circle, without the, the ring, um, and with this huge, huge stage, the horses could go away. And they did. And it was great. Yes. <laughs> because, you know, when they came back, the, the audience loved it because they could see that the horses could go away and come back and that they were free um, 
And uh, so there was a lot of, and, and the, the two people that we partnered with in the beginning uh, were very special uh, horse trainers. Uh, Frédéric Pignon, uh, who's from France, and his wife, Magali Delgado. Yeah. Uh, these two people were so amazing. You know, uh, Frédéric had an amazing liberty act already. He played with his horses a lot. They were, they were looking for, you know, although they are traditional trainers, they're not clicker trainers, but they were looking for other ways, better ways, more respectful ways. Um, so there was a lot of play with their horses, and they were very kind trainers. Mm. Um, and it was a joy for me to work along these people, look at them work for almost seven years was a real joy. They were very, very special, very special people. Yeah. I haven't met anyone like them after that in the traditional world. Um, and yeah, so because they were looking for different ways and we had all these creative ideas, um, it, um, you know, we, we created something completely unique um, that, that toured the world and that people loved because it was different. In Europe, there are lots of, um, more so than in North America or I think in Australia, there, there's a long tradition of, of horses in circuses, but this was something else. This was completely different. The horse was an actor. Um, and, you know, there was no, in the Liberty Acts, we didn't put any accessories on the horses because we think they're beautiful the way they are. Um, and, yeah, but I learned a lot <laughs> because, you know, for over the 15 years that followed, um, we had two touring shows and so every show was about 60 horses and I knew all the horses personally. So I have known a lot of horses, you know, I've, I've known probably over 250 horses and a lot of riders and a lot of trainers. I've seen a lot of people work, um, with horses and it's, so it's given me a perspective and because I was not, um, I was not part of that world for so many years. I also had a very fresh perspective um, on everything, not just creatively, not just from an entertainment point of view, but also um, from an ethic point of view, from a philosophical point of view of how the horses are trained. Because for me, it's not just what you show, you know, it's not just the end result. And this has become uh, even stronger um, over the past few years. How you teach things for me is more important mm. than the end results. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, you know, over the years, because I was not, uh, I haven't grown up with horses and I haven't been... Um, immersed in the, how should I say, the logic that, you know, traditional horse people are educated with, I also became very critical. Mm. Well, the story uh, hadn't right. been written for you as to this is just the way it's done. So you came in with such fresh eyes. So I heard it a lot, mm. you know, of course, because I would, I would not, um, I would not be silent 
when there was anything I did not like. You know, for me, it was it was very important to um, to make sure that the horses had a voice. Um, and you know, we were always very careful um, when we hired our trainers. Uh, we always were looking for kind trainers and respectful trainers. But you know, when you have many many riders, many trainers. Um, not everybody is equal. Not everybody has the same culture, the same education. Not everybody has the same motivation. Some people really like to shine on the stage and that overrides everything else. Um, and you know, what happened during our show for me and backstage was so much better <laughs> than what I saw in a lot of barns, Yeah, you know, because it was part of our brand to have that respect and that partnership with the horses. You know, it was who we were. Um, but I've traveled a lot and, I, you know, I've seen in Europe many things that were difficult. In the States sometimes, too, in certain states, there were things that I saw that were very disturbing to me. Mm. Um, so... Yeah, I've been around the world um, looking at traditional um, horse training, and I, I did become sad sometimes, mad, um, disturbed, and I voiced my concerns always. And so I heard a lot of the logic of the traditional um, training, and... It was such, um, I would say, eye-opening. Uh, when I discovered the science behind all this, because it explained so many things I had seen and I did not understand. It, um, you know, I think we have naturally a lot of ethics when you are not exposed to all the, is rhetoric a word in English? I guess. Rhetoric. 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 Yes. yes. When, you're not, when you're not exposed to all the, the culture, I would say, you, a five-year-old child, if you put them in a training session, they will tell you what is going on. They will tell you, they can see what people can no longer see because they are so immunized now um, against the, you know, the violence really that is happening in the horse world. Um, but if you ask a child, they will tell you, they can see what people have for some reason are oblivious to. Mm. Um, but I think we all have that ethic inside of us naturally. Um, and um, so when I, when I finally, um, years later, was exposed to the science behind behavior, it explained a lot of things for me. It was, it, it was a big relief in a way because there were things I did not understand that I could see things that were working because, you know, obviously negative reinforcement and punishment can work. They do work. Yeah. Um, but they have secondary effects yeah. um, that are undesirable. And, um, and even mild punishment have 
that those effects as well. And I've seen so, so many horses, different personalities of horses, um, exuberant horses. Uh, you know, we had a lot of stallions yes. also, um, which were in a way, um, because we had very experienced trainers like Fred and Magali, uh, our stallions were pretty much this. We had no mares mm. <laughs> because so many stallions on the show so we had no mares but the stallions were just like the other horses <laughs> um they were not um i guess in europe they have more maybe they're more used to working with stallions and so they don't treat them as differently as we do here you know here there are places where the stallions they only come out to breed and so they become these and they're kept Heart. away from everyone. They're kept. They are kept away and they have a different life and, yeah. and it makes them harder, I think, to, to be around. But when they have a normal life, they can be um, just like, you know, your, your gildings, if it, depending on the education they had, of course. Yeah. But, um, and how they've yeah, been brought so, up as well. If they're brought up in a herd with other stallions and geldings and and even with mares they learn how to socialize they are able to do their job um which is looking after the herd and and making sure everything's okay they do beautiful work in training folds they're amazing stallions and um i've seen some beautiful but you have to know what you're doing with them you do yeah for sure there's a lot of horse in a stallion but if you know what you're doing i think they can have a very normal life Mm, absolutely i agree yeah. So, um, yeah. So back to, back to the beginning of 2000, um, we, we created the first show, um, and we started touring North America. Um, and in 2000, so that was two, we started in 2003 and then we went to, um, to Europe. We went to Australia. We went to Asia also a little bit in the Middle East um and at the end um or around 2010 we we started talking about uh making a second show and the horses who had started in 2003 some of them were starting to be older and we had a farm about an hour and a half from montreal where we were importing horses for the show and so we started using that farm for to retire the horses that were at the end of their career. And um, we kept them after their career. We kept them there. Um, it was an 80-acre farm with lots and lots of pasture, great, great um, uh, equipment there. And when we started talking about doing a second show, we also built um, an arena, but like a three-story high arena, because when we created the first show, we just had a regular arena. And so it was difficult to create, um, because the show, the Cavalia show, one of the characteristics was that we were mixing acrobats and horses. Mm. And some of the acrobatic acts were, I, um, I can't say the word in English, like aérien. <laughs> How do you say that? In the air, you know? Uh, in the, the air, the yes, yes. Um, and so in order to create things that were new, we needed the height. Mm. 
So we had this huge uh, three-story high arena. It was a wonderful place to work in. Costly to heat in the, in the winter, but it was a great place. And this is where we created the second show. Um, and when around that time, I decided, because at the beginning I toured with the show. We all went with the show, my partner, myself, my dog, the family, the kids, everyone was on tour. Uh, my partner had two older kids and they were in the business as well. So it was a great adventure. But um, after touring for about seven years, I started feeling homesick um, and I was tired of being in my suitcases all the time. So um, and we were going to have two shows anyway, so I was not going to be able to divide myself. And so I decided to come back and to live on the farm. There was a house in the middle of that 80-acre um, farm, and so I worked from there. The head office of the company was in Montreal, so I would, you know, go to the head office. But most of my time I would spend at the Cavalia farm. And um, over time, um, we started having quite a few retirees there. How old were the horses uh, when they would retire? What age? Well, it depends. It depends on the discipline. And that's, you know, that's a very interesting question because the dressage horses, they would retire very late. Because they only but, you know, start quite late. Is about balance. Mm. And usually the dressage riders, you know, they, they have, in, and we had a lot of um, very well-educated uh, dressage riders. I mean, we were not, we were never, you know, we, we wouldn't get the competition riders. That's, that wasn't the point. For us, the point was not to do a dressage demonstration, but there was dressage in the show and, you know, the, the riders were good. So the dressage people, they always care about the balance. Mm. So those horses, they would retire around 20, some of them, you know. And the way that Fred and Magali brought them up also was ideal for them to last a, a, a long time like this. They were not started too early. They wait till the, the, because most of these horses were Iberic horses. They were either Lusitanos or they were Spanish horses. And so they wait till they're, you know, they don't really start them before they're about six, seven years old. They wait mm. a long time before they start them. They do small things with them before, but, you know, the real work starts later. Yeah. Um, so those would, these, these horses would retire later. The disciplines like uh, trick riding, uh, Roman writing, those disciplines where, you know, the trick writing is where the rider is doing all the stunts on the horses. Mm. Those horses would not last very long. They would be retired very early. Um, in the first show, we did some vaulting also, voltage. Um, I think it's vaulting, yes, in English. Mm -hmm. Um, these horses, we would automatically retire after two years because the vaulting horses, they're always turning on the same during the show. They're always turning because those are the vaulting or the, it was the, one of the only acts where we did have the ring. Yeah. Because you need the horse to go round and round. Mm -hmm. Personally, a discipline I don't particularly like because I feel like the horse is just like a trampoline. <laughs> 
but um, and and there was no vault, vaulting in the second show. Mm-hmm. Um, so those those horses were big draft horses, and they would be retired very early because otherwise, you know, you get all these pathologies that are the same for all the vaulting horses, the side bones, and so we would retire them very early. So it, it depended on the discipline, yeah, um, mostly, but. You know, it could be anywhere from, I would say, 10 to 20 mm. years old. Um, and um, we, some of the horses were, we would find families for them. We had an adoption program. But I would say that over the years, we had more or less all the time about 60 retired horses on the farm. And I was looking, I was overlooking um, that as well while I was doing the marketing and, you know, the business. I was also um, responsible for the retired horses and the staff. We had about a dozen people taking care of them. So I learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot about taking care of horses. Um, And these were like horses of different ages, different breeds with um, different conditions. So it it was like a big crash course. because with so many horses, you know, you, you are exposed to all kinds of, um, of husbandry and of, of medical care. I had a wonderful and still have a wonderful veterinarian. I learned a lot with her. Mm. So, um, and of course, you know, it was also, the farm was also the place where all the training was happening during the creation process. So, so I learned a lot during those, um, those 15 years with all those horses. And um, I started researching um, other ways around 2010. Um, it actually started with my dog, my little Shetland dog, because she was a little baby. And the, like I said, the house was in the middle of the farm. So there were all these paddocks all around. And... Um, she would run into the paddocks and, you know, bark at the horses and hurt the horses. And I, I didn't want that kind of behavior um, because I was afraid for her. It was creating stress for the horses. So people around me said, well, you have to buy a shock collar because it's a distance behavior and that's the only way you can solve it. So I bought a shock collar I listened to the four-hour DVD that came with it. I put the collar on the dog, and I couldn't, I just couldn't press the shock button. You know, it was just not in me. I could not do that. So I took the collar off, but I still had a problem. So I started searching on the internet, And this is where I started to learn about clicker training and positive reinforcement training. Um, And at some point, I thought, well, why not with the horses? Because there were things that I was seeing with the horses where I thought there has to be another way. There has to be a a less stressful way uh, for the animals to learn. And so as I was exploring it with my dogs, I also started researching for the horses. And it just so happens that Alexandra Curlin lives five hours from the farm in the state of New York. 
And, you know, she had written many DVD, many books and she had issued many DVDs. And so I called her and I invited her to the opening night of the second show, which was in 2011. And that was the start of a collaboration that is still going on right now. So she would come up almost every month uh, for many, many years and train the staff because, I mean, obviously you have, everybody has to have the same handling system. Otherwise, you know, it, it makes things very confusing for the horses. So we trained our staff. We trained the horses. Um, and, you know, in front of my eyes, from my window, from my house, I could see the horse transforming all these horses, you know, some of them stallions that had been handled only by experienced um, trainers and riders were handled by grooms that some of them were quite green, actually, and the horses were doing wonderfully, you know, they were well behaved. And it was a pleasure to look at. Wow. Um, so for me, this was you know, it's, and I've, I've seen it not on one horse. I've seen it on dozens and dozens of horses. You know, the transformation um, of those horses. Some of them, you know, you had to be, and, and I, because my, I didn't want any whips. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want the, the leads, to, because people sometimes, they use the lead yeah. as a whip. You know, they wiggle it in the horse's face or they, they use the end of it to what to hit the flanks of the horses, but I didn't want that. But when you take away the whip, you have to put something else in its place because you can't just, you know, give a groom, a stallion to a groom who has been handled, you know, with traditional ways and say, well, no longer, good luck. Yeah. And the paddocks you know, was an 80 acre property. So some of the paddocks were far. Um, and so you, you can't just take it away and not replace it. You're putting your staff in danger if you do that. Yeah. So we, we trained the people. Um, I hired also a full-time uh, trainer who was uh, one of Alexandra's coach, coaches. Her name was Marla um, Foreman, and she worked uh, many years to help with training the horses and the staff. We also did some really fun R&D um, with the horses from, you know, R&D in terms of entertainment, what could we do with clicker training that could not be done with traditional um, training? So we, we started exploring all these ideas of things that the horses could do at a distance where they would not be um, at the end of a whip, you know, or so, so it was a lot of fun. For many years, you know, I really saw the effect of uh, positive reinforcement training on all these horses, I saw that spark, you know, that unique spark, that enthusiasm that only clicker training horses have. I mean, you know, I've seen really good trainers be very respectful, and I've seen horses that were very serene and in traditional training because they were handled with a lot of kindness and intelligence but I've never seen that spark in a traditionally trained horse that 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 enthusiasm you know how 
at the end of a clicker training session, the horse, they don't want to leave. Yeah. It's like, oh no, not already the end of the session. And you have to have these strategies to make sure that it's not punishing when you end your session because they love it so much. <laughs> so to, to see this transformation for me was really, um, it just um, made me want to do that all the time. You know, there, there, it, it, and, and my passion for it kept growing and growing and growing. This episode is brought to you by the Natural Horse Spray. Are you inundated with flies and biting insects? Does your horse suffer from Queensland itch? If so, head on over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com to purchase your horse some natural and ethical relief from biting insects and itch. There are two blends there to choose from. The Kiowa blend is for insect repelling and the Gypsy blend may heal Queensland or sweet itch on your horse and will also repel insects. That's EdenRiverEquestrian.com and if you use the code come along for the ride that's all lowercase and one word come along for the ride you will receive 15% off your order. But what happened was that around I think it was 2014 um, our life as a couple ended mm -hmm. and we tried to work together, but uh, it was difficult. So I, I decided to sell my shares and leave the company. Mm -hmm. um, Which meant you had to leave with, the farm. I had to leave the farm. I, I moved away from the farm. The most difficult, and you know, this company was my baby. So it, it was, you know, it was difficult, but the most difficult was to leave the horses. Mm. That was the hardest part, to leave the horses, because I knew all of them, you know, personally. And so that was hard. But at the same time, um, you know, it was the beginning for me of putting all my time in this um, and really um continuing to learn um all this that the science has to offer uh, because positive reinforcement training and behavior analysis is not that simple you know it's um there's so much nuances that um i don't think i will ever stop learning and now i get to share what um what I learned, although we, we did do some clinics with Alex Sandra um, at the farm with the Cavalia horse. It was actually quite fun because people would come to the clinics and they would learn clicker training with the Cavalia stars, you know, that were retired. So that was fun. Mm. Um, we did that, you know, it was um, for about two, two years. Um, and the horses loved it because it was enrichment for them. Um, but uh, yeah, so now I get to... Um, to share my passion for, for the science behind all this uh, through the podcast and the webinars and um, later on the courses. It was, you know, for me, the, when, when I first met Alex, um, Alexandra, at the time, I remember I felt very alone. Mm. I felt like, you know, I was the only one who felt the way I felt and I had all these people who were getting incredible results around me, um, telling me that, you know, this is how you do it. And 
I felt like, you know, the girly girl with the heart that is too soft. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you have these people who tell you that you have to be a leader with the horses and you have to. <laughs> yes, um, yes, yes. Interesting, they say. Yeah. Some of them say it like, because there's a lot of, um, you know, the, the, the negative reinforcement and the punishment has been expressed in very attractive ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes when you listen to the words, but you look at what's going on, there's a big disconnect. Yeah. <laughs> the words are nice. You know, respect is a very nice word. Although now I tell you, I don't like that word very much anymore. But, you know, so you, you hear all these, these words, you know, all this, I'd have to say, sugarcoating. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when you're a critical thinker, something just doesn't, add up you know it doesn't so when when I first met Alex you know I realized that first of all there was at least another alien on this planet um and I remember the first time when the first night I think we talked non-stop for like five six hours wow it felt so good to finally be able to speak with someone and of course of all people Alexandra Curlin you know who was extremely knowledgeable and then, you know, I came across articles that were written by Dr. Susan Friedman. Mm-hmm. And when I read those articles, uh, which are, you know, available on her website, behaviorworks.org, I think, I realized that all my concerns were um, legitimate and that science was actually telling us that the most humane and effective way to treat, to, to train animal was positive reinforcement. And that it had been researched for decades um, with numerous species. So it, it gave me hope, it gave me a sense of being legitimate that, you know, no, I'm not just the girly girl with too soft a heart. Yeah. Well, this is where the future is. And so it was like such a big relief. And, and as, I, as I learned, as I explored this, I started being able to answer questions that I had for so many years. You know, I didn't understand why horses were following people who had whipped them. Yeah. I couldn't understand things like that. Or, you know, when, you know... Um, when people say, well, um, you don't want to give, because you hear that all the time, don't give food to a stallion, they will bite. Mm. And, you know, I had like, I don't know, 30, 25, 30 stallions that we gave food to, including during the clinics. No one ever got bitten, yeah. of course, because the first lesson is how to behave around food. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, the, the one that you hear so much is, well, you know, the horse has to do, the horse is doing it for food. You don't want the horse to do it for food. You want the horse to do it to please the trainer, to please me, or to, because he, because he, he's interested in me. But, you know, the people who tell you that they don't want the horse to do it for food are not realizing that 
the motivation in their way is the whip. And when they don't have the whip, nothing happens. Yeah. So, I mean, there were all these things, you know, um, well, you want understanding motivation, understanding how and why um, punishment works, how and why negative reinforcement works, and how and why positive reinforcement works, and the side effects of all these different things, um, for me, is, is such a such a revelation and i think i really think that the more people in the horse world will be in, will be interested in the science um the better it will be for the welfare of the horses because it's the science that helps you to sort out what can really be helpful from what is not helpful um it's you know the science helps you understand why yeah. Why things work, how it works, and it 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 helps you to sort out what's a myth from what's a fact. Um, I just, you know, for me, the science is really a, a key thing. It's it's important. It's exciting. It's interesting. It's not something I feel, you know, like oh no, it's boring. I love it. I think the science behind behavior analysis is just the most exciting thing ever. And I think it's important that we all need to at least take a little bit of a look at the why as well, because if you're using a technique yeah. and you're not understanding why, then how can you really, really do it in a way that's going to be effective for both you and the horse? And I think yeah, probably why there's so many people going, feeding your horse doesn't work, treats don't work. It's like, well, they do, but they're probably just doing it incorrectly because they haven't studied Absolutely. the why and they haven't started at step one. They've just gone out and picked up where they left off. Yeah, because there are so many nuances, you know, on how to apply this correctly. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, you know, just as with any method, it takes a lifetime to to master it, although I think that that's one of the advantages of, of learning the science because once you understand the principles, it used to be that you have to have you had to have sort of a natural talent and then you needed 40 years of experience and you could become a good trainer and understand what you were doing. Yeah. But now, because the science is available to us, we can understand the principles behind um, the recipes. The recipes, you know, they're a good entry point, but it, it, like you said, if something goes wrong, if all you have is the recipe, you can't analyze it. You, you, you're stuck. Exactly. And it's really, really important for all of us out there who use these techniques and, and when people kind of put it down and say it doesn't work, it's like, well, it does. But when it's it, like anything, if it's done incorrectly, of course it won't. It's just very simple in that way. Yes, and the, and the science is still, of course, uh, evolving. You know, it never ends because um, 20 years ago, some of the teaching strategies for clicker training have been refined. And, you know, there are things that are no longer taught the same way, Um which I think is one of the advantage of science too, because it it complete it it auto corrects over the year. Mm -hmm. um, so it's 
And, and you know, the, the other thing, and, and it's especially true in the entertainment world, but there's a lot of, um, a lot of teaching that is around personalities. You know, the personality magic. Um, there are these charismatic people who have developed methods. And sometimes it seems so inaccessible to someone who... Um, who wants to start or who wants to have um, a relationship with their horses. But the science, again, you know, it's not personality magic. It's not, it's, it, it's something that you can learn that is accessible to everyone. You don't have to be strong. You have to be, you know, interested and use your mind, but uh, you don't have to be particularly athletic. Um, and you can have a wonderful time with your horse. Mm. The other thing for me, too, is that, and that's that's a very, I guess, personal perspective, but, um, you know, one of the reasons why all the retired horses, we kept them after their career was because, for me, a horse is not just um, a, a you know, like something that you jump with or that you have to ride or a horse can be a companion. Yes. You know, an older horse can bring you so much joy. I remember once I was doing an interview um, for the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and I was the third um, interview, the, per the third person being interviewed and the second person was a vet. And he had worked in the racing industry. And he was talking about a horse that um, had been euthanized at, um, I think it was six or seven, and because he was no longer able to race. And he was saying it was a very noble death. Wow. And I was jumping in the studio <sighs> and... The producer said to me, well, you'll, you'll have your turn. You can talk later. And I thought, you know, there's so much joy to have with a horse without even riding the horse. Yeah. There's so much you can do with, personally, you know, I love groundwork. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't like groundwork. I don't like um, mindlessly lunging a horse, but I love playing with horses. It's, you know... In the show, it was always the Liberty Acts that were my preference. And it's still true. You know, I love to be at Liberty with my horses. Um, you know, I started applying some of the uh, agility teaching from the dog world to my horses. And I want to do some freestyle with my horses because I think that it's a, like an extension of the Liberty Acts in a way. Yeah. But freestyle from the dog world I just love looking at that and I think why not with our horses you know it's a little bit like a liberty act except that the moves are a bit different because traditionally the liberty acts it's pretty much this you know you have the horse lie down you have the horse sit up they will do little uh, waltzes um, they so but there are so many creative ideas that you see in the dog freestyle world that I think that can be applied to horses. And so I'm having a lot of fun exploring all these things. And um, it's, it's not about riding. Yeah. It's about being with my horses, 
uh, having fun with that. I never say I'm going to go train my horse. I always, my horses, I always say, I'm going to go play with my horses. I always say it like that. That's how I feel. Yeah. I feel like I'm playing with them. So, um, yeah, I think that the, the science, understanding the principles can really um, move us forward so much more. Absolutely. And, and everything, as everyone knows, you do on the ground, translate into, into the saddle as well. You know, if you play with your horse, if you spend the time on the ground doing amazing fun things, of course, when you're in the saddle, they're going to listen to you more. That's just basic relationships. And that crosses right. species. So I, I think it's so valuable. Everything that you've said is, is absolutely spot on. Alex has a saying, I don't know if I remember. She says, um, writing, I, I'll probably uh, mess it up a little bit, but she says, writing is groundwork where you get to sit and groundwork is writing where you're standing up, something like that. But yeah, they do. And you know, if, if you can't teach something on the ground, well, if you don't understand how your horse learns on the ground, well, you, you're just going to make it so much more difficult when you're sitting on them because I mean, riding is a complex activity, Mm. but so is behavior um, science. You know, you're, you have to master both. You have to master how your horse learns and you have to master riding, which is, all, you know, in, in and of itself already something that, you know, takes a whole life to learn to do well. Mm. And so it's, you know, it's a lot uh, to master at the same time. Yeah. And if you and can't communicate it on the ground, if your horse doesn't understand what you're saying and you can't get it across clearly, how do you think it's going to be different when you're in the saddle? Exactly. You know, it, always, it almost always amazes me when I see people jumping with their horses, but they cannot walk the horse from point A to point B without a big struggle they can't put the horse in the shower without a big struggle. Even sometimes just putting the, just going to the mounting block. I mean, there are, and this is one of the things I think it, with, with the clicker training that we learn is breaking the, all good trainers know that that needs to be done, whether they're traditional or not. You know that good teaching is breaking things down in small steps. Yeah. But I think in the clicker training, we do it to an extent that I have never seen in traditional trainer. And we have the advantage of the marker. Yes. The precision of the marker in the communication with the animal is such a big advantage. Absolutely. And um, once they've got that, it translates again into saddles so much easier. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. What's interesting is when I started this um, podcast, I was going on a journey because similar to you, I'd, I'd ridden horses when I was a teenager, but not so not as an adult. And I'd gotten back into horses and I was doing therapy work and everyone was trying to show me how I should be training my horse. And every time they showed a traditional method, my gut just clenched. And I didn't have the answer, but I knew that wasn't it. 
And so um, the whole point of this podcast was to find the people, find the way that um, where horses were wanting to be engaged with humans, they were wanting to be trained, they were waiting at the gate saying, come on, what have you got for me today? And um, yeah. it's led me to the positive reinforcement side of training. Everyone who's getting every response, the horses are looking, feeling the way that they that I had always dreamed they would, that I could see. Um, I just didn't know how. It all comes down to the positive reinforcement and the clicker training. So, um, yeah, I think it teaches something quite incredible. You know what I saw too, which is really interesting, is because when I left the company, before I sold the house, I stayed on the farm for a little while, um, but I was no longer managing the place. I was no longer part of the company. So these horses who had been handled with positive reinforcement for many, many years were now back to traditional handling. Again, you know, uh, very respectful traditional handling, but still not positive reinforcement. Mm. And in some of them, the behaviors we had when we first started that we got rid of came right back. Wow. was so interesting to see because I remember this one horse, he was afraid for some reason of going through doors, paddock doors, building doors. So we worked with him and, um, you know, in the end he would go through and it didn't take that long. It took a few months, you know, and he would go through any door. Um, in the beginning we made the doors, uh, the paddock doors larger. And for some reason he would want to go backwards. That felt safer to him and we allowed it. But in the end he was going forward and um, through any door, no problem, you know, um, it was a sitch. And I saw him revert back exactly to where he was in such a short time. Wow. So you put the context, the animal back into the same context, the same behavior will come back. It makes sense. We know that. We know that behavior is a function of the environment. So one of the strategies we use when we'd want to change a behavior is to change the context, either the antecedents or, you know, the reinforcement. So when you put the animal back into the context, the same environment, the same kind of reinforcement, whether in this case might be negative, this, well, it comes back. The behavior comes back. It's never forgotten. Yeah. It's just a function of the environment. God, that so that was very interesting yeah. too because I wondered about that. You know, how long would it hold? Yeah. How long would people be able to take this? Because this horse, when we first had him, you know, he was he could be dangerous when he would go through doors. He would he could be dangerous. So I was wondering how long it would take. It take it didn't take long at all. Wow, wow. And people will not. And you know, people were not beating this horse up. Not at all. No. It would just. Going back to traditional, you know, what you see in every barn everywhere in the world, wiggling of the, of the lead rope, you know, and it came right back. Wow. You know, for him. 
That's incredible. So that was very interesting. Mm, absolutely. So tell me more about what it is that you and Alexandra are doing now. So you have a podcast. That's a weekly podcast, as you were saying, uh, and I'll have podcast. links in the show notes to that so everyone can hop on over. That's right. And we, so we, we do a lot of collaboration with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz, who is, do you know him, Tracy? Uh, the name does not ring a bell. I will um, be looking, for, looking up now. Oh, definitely. I mean, this, this person, he is so, I mean, he will make your head spin. He will, when you think I like that those you, people. oh, when you think you finally understand something, you can count on him to add something. And then you, you see why some of the things that you tried didn't work. He's amazing. You know, he's always, he takes everything that you read that you think, okay, that's it. That's, you know, that's the law, the principle, and he will add so much to it. He's always, he's very interested in the practical. He's, you know, he has his students, with his students, he does a lot of researches. Um, you know, he, for instance, um, did the research on the poison cue. Have you heard of this? No, please tell us. Okay. So it, this, this was a very interesting, and I think for the horse people, it's very important to understand the poison cue because, you know, when you have a cue that is sometimes followed by a reward mm -hmm. and sometimes followed by a punishment or negative reinforcement, the... It's, it has a completely different effect on the animal than if you're using positive reinforcement. And cues get poisoned all the time. Sometimes we don't even realize it. Um, you know, there was this example, for instance, of a dog who was, uh, the, the handler was using positive reinforcement. She was a positive reinforcement trainer. Mm -hmm. but Every time she put a little vest on this dog, I don't remember what kind of demonstration she was doing, but the, the, the dog um, had the, the, the kinds of reaction, you know, he was, um, his tail was low, all his body language indicated a lot of stress. And so the, the vest, because she put this vest every time they would do demonstration, and the demonstrations he was actually not quite ready for. He was overwhelmed when he did these demonstrations. So this little vest had become a cue for him uh. Uh, that they were going to do a demonstration. And even though she rewarded him throughout the demonstration, for him, you know, it was slightly punitive to be there. So there was this mix of reward and discomfort. Yes. Um, the research that he showed, um, and Alex actually published this in a DVD called The Poison Cue. It's, it's really something that any, every horse person should, should watch. Um, so you have um, a dog that is... Um, they, they, they put a grid, um, they have a floor, and they put some, um, some X's in certain um, uh, tiles on the floor. And w so 
in the beginning, at the beginning of the research, they have the dog on leash and they, when they call the dog, um, the dog gets clicked when he comes back and he gets a reward. And this is what they call the um, veneer condition. So the dog is called, he comes back, he gets clicked. And as you can imagine, you know, the more he's called, the more he comes back. Then they set up what they call the punir um, condition, where if the dog doesn't come promptly, he gets a pull on the leash. Oh. So those are the punir conditions. Mm -hmm. Then what they did was they, because we all know that when you use positive reinforcement, you can use the cues as a reinforcer. When, when a cue has been positively um, taught, you can use the cue as a reinforcer for something you want to reward. But it's only true if, so they wanted to check if that, was, if that would be true in the punir conditions as well. So they, they did the grid, they put X's in certain tiles, and in the veneer conditions, when the dog would go on the X on the floor, you have to see it, it's really, when you watch it, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. when, when the dog would go on the X, they would cue veneer, and the dog would come, and then he would go right back to the X because, of course, he wants to be cued to come back because he knows that this cue is always followed by a reward. But in the punir conditions, when he, so in the beginning, he goes and if he steps on the X and he's called back, there's no longer any corrections at this point in the research. Mm -hmm. But the, the effect of the past corrections, when they say punir so that he comes back, he comes back not very promptly. His body language is awful. He actually looks like he's not a very intelligent dog. He keeps not going back to the X. He, he, he's uh, avoiding the X. But, you know, once in a while, he'll go back They'll say punir, they won't correct him, and they will give him a reward. And so you see the effect that a mix of reward and punishment has the long-lasting effect, because they, this lasted for a long time afterwards, where in the first, uh, you see this dog that where you have, um, uh, you know, a very active, proactive dog that keeps looking for ways to make the trainer say the cue. And in the second condition, he's doing everything he can to avoid the cue. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all kinds of things can be poisoned. Yeah. The saddle can be poisoned. Yeah. So we have so much power, don't we? We have so much responsibility with every choice we make. That's right. So what do you do if the saddle is poisoned now? Mm. Because if the for the horse... Writing means, well, yeah, sometimes she'll reward me, but sometimes, you know, I'll get very uncomfortable. 
So it's the, the poison cube it was very, for me, it was a, a very important notion to, to have and to know what do you do if something has been poisoned, whether, you know, you, you're aware of it or it was done inadvertently, how, what do you do? Yeah. So, yeah, we collaborate with him um, a lot. And every time it's, you know, the webinars we do with him, I think I've watched each of them at least four times and I'm still going to watch them because there's so much information in there. We did one with uh, Dr. Susan Friedman, um, who's an amazing, amazing uh, ambassador of the behavior science. Um, she, you know, there's one thing that she said, I think it was in our webinar. She said, you know, there isn't that many science where you could say that if people understand the basics, they can solve 95% of the behavior problems. Wow. Wow. Normally, you know, if you want to be a doctor and you'll have to go through the full um cursus of of you know the the biology and all that but she said you know in behavior because we know so much about behavior and if you understand the basics you can solve a lot of problems so it's worth spending and excellence is really the basics done really well yeah so we did one with her and we did one with famous trainer ken ramirez um who was the um, head of the Shed Aquarium for many, many years. Um, he had, I don't know, 75 trainers under him. Um, he's an amazing trainer, and he's now the head of the Karen Pryor clicker training. Um, he's, um, we did, the one we did with him was on husbandry and medical care, because obviously with all these animals, um, he had under his care, you know, he's, he certainly knows how to get voluntary um, cooperation for, from animals um, for their care. And, you know, it's, it's when you look at things that are done in zoos nowadays, oh, you know, with elephants and animals. Yeah. And sometimes you look at how horses are handled it's amazing, you know, it's not the size because if they can do it with an elephant, why couldn't we do it with a horse, yeah. you know? If, if you can get a voluntary blood sample, if you can have a... a lions and elephants. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen it all. Whales and, yeah, so why not with our horses? Yeah, I totally agree. I totally Yeah, so these... these um, uh, you know, Ken, he, he has these amazing stories as well because he's trained so many animals and so many different species. So he has seen the, you know, the positive reinforcement, um, how it um, benefits these animals. Um, he has this story. He, he worked for a while um, with uh, birds. There was a bird show that he worked with in New Mexico. And um, there was an earthquake. They had, I think, six aviaries. Um, and some of the, all the, the, the birds were getting basic trainings, but some of the birds were getting more training because they were in the shows. And when this earthquake, it was like a, a 
eight on the Richter scale. Oh, that's earthquake. a big one. Mm. Uh, two aviaries were almost completely destroyed by buildings that collapsed on them. And um, these two aviaries were home to 60 birds. And most of them died from inhaling the smoke and the dust from the buildings collapsing, except 17. And those of those 17 birds, 14 were birds from the shows. And they managed to find the trainer's office, the show stage, or the um, training um, room, they, that's how they survived wow. because that's where they went. And of the 17, 14 were birds that had uh, extensive clicker training. And, you know, for him, it was like, is this a coincidence or does it expand their capacity to solve problems? Um. You know, he has another story of a sea lion that um, he had taught for many, many years. And I think they were renov renovating the habitat of the sea lion. And so they had to move them to another habitat close to a lake. And um, after two weeks, they realized that one of the, the, the sea lion that had extensive training, he was very slow in the morning, like, like if he had had a big meal. And apparently they have voracious appetite. And so they, they couldn't understand how come he was like this. And one night, um, Ken gets a phone call from the security who says they're seeing a big animal in the lake. <laughs> and so he thought, well, you know, there are no big animals like the one he's describing. There are only fishes in this lake. And so he decides to go to the premises and sure enough, he sees this big animal and he thinks, oh, my God, this is, you know, one of our sea lion. I don't remember his name. Let's call him Fred. And so he, he goes back to the, um, the place where the sea lions are supposed to be. And instead of having seven sea lions, there are only six and Fred is missing. So he, he doesn't do anything. He waits. He waits till the sun comes up. And he sees Fred coming out of the lake, finding the lowest part of the fence, climbing over the fence. He, he, he puts his weight on his, um, what do you, how do you say in English, like flippers? Yes, flippers, yeah. Which, which is a, not a normal behavior for, for Selah. And this was something that Ken had taught him. And he, he manages to to bring his 500 and I don't know how many pounds over the fence, goes back into the habitat. Wow. And the next night, uh, Ken waits. And when the sun goes down and everybody is away, Fred goes back, fish all night in the lake, where he could have stayed, by the way. But I guess he found that, you know, being with humans was fun enough that it was worth coming back, even though he could have free fish in the lake. Yeah. So came back. So all these abilities, you know, to solve problems is something that 
we don't talk a lot about, but it's, I think the welfare of our animals and the benefit to them is so great, you know, maybe more than even we even know. Yeah. It's that enriching of their life and their environment that makes them more curious and more, yeah, able to problem yeah. solve, wondering what's going on out there. It's like you're waking them up in a way. Yeah. Extraordinary. It's wonderful. And all the, you know, the, the, there's a big trend right now um, towards giving them more choices and, and giving, you know, there's um, some people call it start button where you wait for the animal to let you know that they're ready for a procedure. Yeah. Um, and it makes a huge difference, yeah. you know, in the collaboration, you, even for aversive uh, procedures. Mm. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's it's like giving them a voice, isn't it? It's like being it able is to like literally saying, you tell me when you're ready. You tell me if you want this and when you're ready and and we can do it. What, what an empowering, amazing thing to be able to do for an animal, any animal. You know, one maybe one last story from Ken because he did this um, not long ago. Um, he does a talk on it. It's called um, Dr. No something i don't remember the rest of it but there was this um this i don't remember what kind of fish it was but let's say it's a dolphin but i'm not sure what it was exactly but we'll say it's a dolphin so there was this dolphin that had been born in the facility at the shed aquarium and so he had lived all his life with positive reinforcement but because he was such a sweet and easy animal he was given to all the new trainers and as you know new trainers are not perfect in their timing and you know they can which because it's not because you do positive reinforcement that it's necessarily positive for the animal yeah you know if your timing is off if you don't understand what you're doing it can become a very frustrating experience yeah and so we have to be aware that the fact that we're giving a carrot doesn't mean the animal is having a good time. So this animal um, started not collaborating in certain medical procedures, but it took a long time before it was brought to Ken's attention. Um, and so by the time it was brought to his attention, this dolphin would not come for um, blood uh, samples. And so what he decided to do, he said to his trainer, okay, when you're going to call him, um, either he can come to you and have the procedure done, or he can go to a buoy. We will click and reinforce him for going to the buoy, and going to the buoy means he's not, he doesn't want the procedure. Mm -hmm. He's not getting, the procedure will not follow. So the trainer said, well, Ken, he, he'll never come for the procedure. If you're going to reward him for saying no, I mean, he will never come back. <laughs> and he said, well, bear with me. Let's try. And sure enough, after a few weeks, the animal started collaborating again because he was given a voice yeah he was given a choice yeah a voice so and he, a could, choice. he could he wow. could he could get the same reward yep 
it's not like, okay, I'm not going to punish you, but I won't reward you. He was getting the same reward. Yeah. So there must be other rewards, some social, you know, reward that, you know, made him want to come to the trainer. But I think that's pretty powerful. I think that's you extraordinary. Know, so it's just the beginning. We're just discovering all this stuff. Mm. It's, um, I remember one of the early trainers that I um, interviewed on this podcast well over a year ago, and she was saying, when you listen to the no's, you get less of them in the future, but you have to listen Absolutely. and respect them. And then yeah. you get less of them later, but you've got to allow them and you've got to listen to them and then they can do less of them. You need to let them know that they are heard. They're heard and then you restart the process of teaching mm. so that they can know that whatever it is that they were saying no to can be um, they can enjoy it, it can be rewarding. And it can um, be in their time when they're ready. Absolutely. Yep, it's like us, you know, we know we've got to go and get a tooth pulled at the dentist and it's not pleasurable, but we, you know, we build ourselves up and we talk ourselves into it and we get ourselves ready and we go and do it. And it's this, that's all the animals are doing. They're saying, right, I know this is coming. I'd just like to get myself ready for that. And um, when they're shown they're respected and, and heard more so, then they'll, they'll choose the time when they're ready. I experienced this with one of my horses. Um, his name is Bonanza, and I adopted him uh, about two years ago, and he didn't like to go in the shower stall. Mm -hmm. Apparently, for many years, he would not step foot in the shower stall. So I had been doing some exercises with him where um, I would slowly build step-by-step step, approaching the shower stall and giving food, but I was not progressing very rapidly. And um, so I thought, well, what does he really, really want the most is to not go in the shower stall. So I allowed him to, every time I would ask for a step forward, the reward would be we go away from the shower. Mm -hmm. And then I also added a, a carrot. And I started progressing so rapidly. Now he gets full showers, but I progress like 25 times more rapidly because, you know, what he really wanted was to step away. So I gave him that. You know, so when you... You know, that's part of what, what also Susan Friedman teaches us is that when you understand the function of a behavior um, and you respect the function of the behavior, um, you can be much more successful in your behavior modification plan. Mm, absolutely. You know, if, and, and then you can reteach. You can reteach that going in the shower stall um, is not a scary is not a scary thing, and if and we will not force you there, you know we will go at your own rhythm. But um, again, you know it's another example when you understand certain principles 
Um, and in, in this case, you know, it was the pre-MAC principle, but when you understand these principles and when, when it, you can progress much more rapidly, you know, you can, you can decide on the spot, oh, okay, I'm going to change something here, you know, and you know where to go because you have all these tools in your toolbox. Mm, absolutely. And like you've been saying the whole time, once you understand the foundation and why you're using each of these things, then you can solve problems. You can. And, you know, I'm saying this and I'm, I'm very humble because I feel I have so, you know, it's been now about 10 years and I'm, I, I really, it sounds cliche, but I really do feel that I've barely, barely scratched the surface and that I have so much to learn. And every time, you know, I spend time with Jesus Rosales Ruiz, it's like, oh my God. You, some, you know, there's one phrase I hear a lot in clicker training, which I don't find to be true. People say something like, um, it's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah. I don't agree. I don't think it's simple at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's simple because, you know, we understand that and it's a big thing that consequence drives behavior, but it's not that simple. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to educate ourselves. We have to invest time to learn. Yeah. And, and we, and again, I think this is where science can help us. We have to make sure we learn with good resources, it's important, you know, to learn with good resources. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a uh, lots of fun ahead, you know, lots of learning ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and tell me a little bit about, um, I'll have all the links to your, like I said, the podcast and website and things. Tell me about the course you and Alexandra are putting together. Yeah, we're, we're preparing a course with uh, Mary Hunter, who's a behavior analyst and um, a longtime collaborator of Dr. Rosales Ruiz. Mm -hmm. She has a master's um, uh, degree in the science of uh, behavior analysis. So it's an introduction to behavior uh, analysis. We go through the history and the main principles, but we do it um, in a conversational way. Um, and we do it also um, as an audio uh, course because, you know, I think podcasts are, I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts a lot. Um, I think they're great in today's time because we're so busy. Mm. Um, we have so much backlog and things we want to read. So the podcasts and, you know, audio courses, they allow you to drive and to maybe clean stalls and do other things at the same time, which, um, you know, we're constantly multitasking and we're always short of time, but we need to educate ourselves. So we're using the same delivery method. Um, and so I'm hoping it'll be out in the fall so people should maybe listen to the podcast or go on the website from time to time and we'll keep, um, you know, we'll, we'll let them know when, uh, when the course is out, but it, um, I think it's going to be a good review of a good introduction 
to uh, behavior analysis. Dominique, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time today. I've been looking forward to this chat for a long time and it's been everything I could have imagined. You've had such a brilliant life and you've done so much for horses. So thank you for your time. But most of all, thanks for what you've done. Thank you so much for being that person who was able to stand back from it all and say, this isn't right. And and I know there's another way. And you found it. Now you're bringing it to the world using all your skills to help horses. So thank you so much from all of us here at Come Along for the Ride, our big community, as to what it is you do for horses every single day. Well, thank you, Tracy, because I I know you are on the same path. And, you know, it's so great to know that there is this revolution that is happening on the planet and that there are so many of us uh, everywhere. Um, And it feels good to know that um, there's a big community, a growing community um, who feel the way you and I feel. Mm. And so thank you for your podcast and for what you're doing. It's an absolute pleasure. It's wonderful. And it gives me goosebumps every time I think about it. It's such a beautiful thing. So thank you again. And I really look forward to you, to, um, to meeting you in person one day. We'll, um, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for each we're other and I'm sure our paths will cross. Yeah. yeah, that would be nice. Beautiful. Well, if you're ever coming to Australia, let me know. We're happy to host you over here in Brisbane. Thank you. Wonderful. And until then, take very good care and thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Tracy. It was a pleasure. I'm on a mission to create a community of conscious horse people so that their horses all over the world can live a better life. This is a big mission with a wonderful message and it needs your help. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to join me on my mission of making the world a better place for horses by bringing consciousness to the horse world, please do one of the following. You can go over to our Patreon page at patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash come along for the ride podcast and become a subscriber to the show. As Patreon members, you're helping this podcast become a weekly show once again. And remember, any funds that go over the cost of production will go into new and exciting projects that you, as a subscriber, will have a say in. You could also pop over to EdenRiverEquestrian.com and see our range of sustainable, ethical and organic gear for both horses and humans. Remember, 50% of profits go back to helping horses all over the world live a better life. Or you could leave us a review and tell the world why you love this podcast. You can do that through whichever app it is that you're listening now. The best place to do it is through iTunes. They give juice that gives other bits juice that boosts the podcast up. And basically that gets it into more people's ears so that we can make a real difference in the world. You could also share this podcast with a friend. Tell everyone you know about it and guide them to an episode that you think they'd really enjoy. All the links you need can be found in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you next time on Come Along for the Ride.